You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Tonight's episode is going to be the first part of a two-part series. I'm kind of running a little bit of a plant uh, masterclass, so to speak, although I'm not going to be the one who's the expert here. Uh, I've got Zach Goodnow from Equatorial Ecosystems, and tonight we're going to start the first part of it. We're going to talk about aroids, and then the second part, which I'm going to release at a later date, is going to be about macrovia. So for a lot of us who are kind of becoming more and more involved in plant care, and uh, I don't want to say exotic plants, but uh, more diverse plants that we're incorporating into our vivariums instead of the usual kind of hobby staples, uh, I thought it would be interesting to cover some of that content and, uh, you know, just hear some of Zach's opinions and his experiences with working with aroids and macrovia. And first off, I do want to thank a couple of people. I, I saw some really, really nice five-star reviews the past week or so. And um, I want to give a shout-out to Brett844 and to uh, Edison. Uh, Edison, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce your name, but I want to thank you both for the nice uh, five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. It's a great way to help support the show. And uh, the more uh, five-star reviews we get, the more of an audience I get. And that's what I'm always looking for is to get the word out there and uh, get the show in front of as many people as possible. Another great way to support the show, if you are interested, check out the Patreon page. For a $5 uh, tier, you can get a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And uh, if you are a business, I have a new tier that I just set up. Uh, There is a tier just for businesses or professionals, etc., and uh, if that's a tier you're interested in, I encourage you to look at it and contact me for additional details. And that's basically it. So uh, I do want to run a quick disclaimer. I wasn't feeling well this week, so my voice is a little bit uh, <laughs> a little bit extra gravelly. So I'm going to try to keep up with Zach as best as I can. So if my, uh, my voice isn't quite on point tonight, I'm going to ask you to just, uh, just forgive me. So, uh, you know, the show must go on. But uh, in any event, why don't we get into tonight's topic, which is going to be aroids. But first off, um, Zach, welcome back. I I had you on the show a while ago, and uh, it's great to have you back. And uh, why don't you just give us kind of an update in terms of what you've been up to since we spoke last. Well, hey, Dan. Uh, First, uh, thanks for having me back. Um, uh, As far as an update, uh, like, you know, we we were talking before we got on, I, I got married about a month after um you we we spoke last so kind of adjusting to that in terms of the hobby i just finished my building my third greenhouse uh i build i have a, a greenhouse a large greenhouse that i grow tropical plants in and then most frog people who who know of me don't know this but i also grow some arid plants uh some succulents, but they're they're more uh, they're tropical during their growing season, and they have a, a major dormancy. So I just built a greenhouse to house some of those species that need warm winters. They're they're summer growers, but they don't like to get cold. And then I have a smaller greenhouse to house some Mexican cacti and some some winter growing succulent plants. So um, finished that last week, and I started moving stuff in to get ready for the winter because we're getting into the forties this week and and some of that stuff's going to want to stay warmer than that. That's pretty cool. One of my ultimate fantasies has always been to have my own, my own greenhouse, but actually I shouldn't say that I have one at work that I, uh, that I can use, but uh, I don't use enough, but that's gotta be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's been, it was always a dream of mine and we finally got a house big enough to support it where it's not, 
the whole yard's not taken up by greenhouses. Everything's kind of tucked away and, and space is maximized. So it's been fun. It, it's work, but it's fun work. So. Yeah, it's always, it's, it's, that's gotta be great. There's anytime I ever go in a greenhouse, I always enjoy it, but <laughs> so let's, let's get into our topic tonight, which is going to be aroids. So for those of us who aren't quite that immersed in the plant world, um, myself included, I just got my first aroid a couple of months ago, but and I know that the term is, is, it's a very broad term. I know it encompasses probably thousands and thousands of species, but can you kind of walk us through what exactly is an aroid or, I mean, I should say, what is an aroid in terms of uh, plants that we would encounter in the, in the hobby? So I think you'd actually be surprised at what all are aroids because there are some highly specialized ones, but then there's also some that are extremely common that, that you come across if you go to Walmart or a grocery store or anything else. Uh, botanically, an aeroid is a member of the family Eraceae, and those are primarily characterized by their floral characteristics. So aeroids don't necessarily produce a flower like uh, a sunflower or something like this. They've got two major structures that make an aeroid an aeroid, and that's the spathe and the spatics. And the spathe is this kind of leafy covering around the spatics. And a spatics is this sort of cylindrical tube-shaped structure that, that arises above the leaves, or, or sometimes it's, it's below, but typically from something that you'd encounter commonly, it sits above the leaves. And if you think of like a peace lily is an aeroid, and so are the common uh, local greenhouse or big box store anthuriums that are, you know, green heart-shaped leaves and kind of the heart-shaped, what we would call a flower uh, that, that are pinkish or red. The spathe on those anthuriums or on a peace lily is that white covering on what we would refer to as the flower or that red or pink structure. And the spatics is in a peace lily white or in those common anthuriums is typically yellow. And the, the actual flowers are housed on that spatix. And I'm not gonna say universally, but generally aeroids have what they call imperfect flowers. A single flower doesn't have both male and female parts. It only contains one. But on most spatixes, there are male flowers and female flowers. An adaptation to prevent self-pollination though is that the male flowers and the female flowers occur on different segments of the spatix and they mature at different times so one lags behind the other so pollen from the upper section can't uh, fertilize a, an egg from the lower section you need a flower either from the same plant but an older flower or from a neighboring plant who actually perform pollination and get fertile berries uh, Aeroids, the family, like you said, are, are, is a huge family and encompasses uh, hundreds of thousands of species. They range from the largest unbranched inflorescence in the world in Amorphophallus titanum, all the way down to the smallest flower in the world, which is uh, a, a species of, of duckweed. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with duckweed from either planet aquariums or just ponds outside. Uh, all of those things are aeroids. As far as aeroids in the hobby uh, are, you know, loved or hated, 
Pathos is actually an aeroid from Southeast Asia. Other common ones that, that have been in the hobby for a really long time are like the heartleaf philodendron, philodendron heteraceum, philodendron varicosum, uh, plenty of anthuriums. Um, trying to think of other genera that you'd, raphidophora, which is another shingler similar to, to Mark Gravia. Those were probably some of the most common aeroids that you'd see in frog tanks five years ago. Now, the aeroid hobby has exploded in the last decade for sure, you know, three to five years, even even more specifically to the, the, the general dart frog keeper may also be keeping a, a number of aeroids that weren't in wide cultivation in the country, you know, when I started keeping frogs. It's interesting how, like we, like you said, within the past couple of years, how much aroids have just, I guess, sort of, I don't want to say infiltrated, but I mean, really influ- uh, infiltrated the uh, the dart frog world and the vivarium world. How did these plants make their way into the dart frog hobby? Was this something that we picked up from houseplant people, or is this just sort of kind of a convergent thing where once um, houseplant people started getting into it, um, dart frog people sort of got into it at the same time because i know a lot of us buy from the same uh, the same sources how, how did it get into the hobby so in terms of aeroids in general getting into the hobby uh, they most like or, or they they for sure predate me in their most common or or widely grown forms and i'd have to assume that a lot of them outside of something like pathos came in because a lot of the original dart frog keepers were often associated with zoos or aquariums or even botanical gardens. And, you know, they may have worked there or, or were first introduced to frogs there and decided, hey, these are cool. I, you know, they make good displays. I want to keep a couple at home. And so some of your original dart froggers probably got clippings from institutions or had friends there because they were, you know, in some kind of academic or institutional capacity and and you know they started getting them that way i know uh, atlanta botanic gardens introduced a number of species into the dart frog hobby and uh, ron gagliardo who used to be at atlanta botanic gardens uh, did a, a a lot right, and knew a lot of people in the dart frog world both privately and at zoos and so i think a lot of the central and south american species really came in through connections with other hobbies. Now, uh, lately, um, there's been a, a, a huge increase in the diversity of available aeroids. And a lot of that has to do with just the one social media connecting the general public to these overseas nurseries, but also the overseas nurseries kind of catering to terrarium plants. They saw that market and and they'd mark plant on their sites as terrarium suitable, or you had Equigenera in um, Ecuador was a was a huge nursery that primarily does orchids, and they've done aeroids for many years and participated in the aeroid show down in Florida. But they had a an employee break off and kind of do his own thing and get connected with some of the California froggers, and I think they kind of catered his plant acquisitions within the country to cater towards more terrarium plants. And, and so you saw a lot of his offerings were 
miniature plants that did well in high humidity and could handle a lot of watering. So from him and then from other nurseries kind of seeing what he did and following suit, you, you've been, the general hobby has been exposed to significantly more availability in the last you know, three to five years or so. It seems to be with everything, especially the availability of new locales and species of dart frog, especially. I mean, uh, now that places like like Tesoros is, is able to legally export from Colombia, and um, we just we've got a whole bunch of new new locales that came into the into the states and into Europe recently. Do you think that the demand is really just because we want new and exciting things? Because like, hear, hear me out on this. Let's just say, for example, um, we have like. Uh, let's say azurius which has been a hobby forever it's a it's a blue frog it's, it's beautiful or recently we had uh was a qatari river came in which was kind of looked like black but it's still a blue it's still a blue frog and everyone went like crazy for it because it's like oh well it's the newest blue frog in the meantime i mean they look they look kind of similar it's still still a blue frog but i mean what what is like what's exceptional about some of the newer aroids that are coming into the vivarium trade that make them so highly coveted i think a lot of it is they're still i guess it's kind of twofold in in one way there are still plants being both discovered and described because there's plenty of undescribed material being passed around this country and, and in other nurseries um that just are really spectacular you see a lot of the anthuriums that are in Central America, specifically Panama, that just have almost black leaves. And these are plants that somebody may have seen in a book 20 years ago that they thought, you know, it's not described. It's in this undisclosed location. We never may find it that are finally starting to pop up because people down there are seeing that there's a demand for it here. And now we're more globally connected. So you know, seeds or, or artificially propagated plants, hopefully, are leaving you know, countries of origin and ending up here. And, and so you do have a, a, a glut of really spectacular species that are newly offered, but then you also have kind of like what you said, the gotta catch them all, gotta have the newest and greatest drive to, oh, I, I don't have that yet, I, I, let me grab it too. And with plants, it's a little easier to do than dart frogs because for every dart frog, you have to make another fruit fly culture, Whereas for plants, you kind of just need another pot on the bench and, you know, you're largely you're watering them the same. Your potting media is the same. As long as your conditions are conducive for similar species, the care is also similar. So you're not adding a ton of time by adding another plant. So um, some of it is the, the collector mentality of, you know, new and greatest. And some of it is we're being exposed to, you know, holy grail species in real time. I can see how that works, especially when you want something that's, uh, I, I like what you said before about it being something that you thought you'd never see in real life. And then I guess once you have the opportunity to have it, uh, why not, why not go for it? I can't, I can't blame right. anybody for that, but w what are some pros and cons of using aroids? And again, I know, I know aroids is a really like, it's such a broad term, but I'm just going to kind of phrase that in the context of aroids that we would normally see in the dart frog world. So what, what are some pros and cons of aroids versus other things like say, um, like moss or, um, or, or a bromeliads or anything like that. So, and I 
kind of glossed over this in in the the previous time I spoke, but one of the the great benefits of most aeroids is they're big leafy plants that can handle low light and and high humidity, high watering, and so they serve. This is from a dart frog perspective. They serve as great cover. You you plant them in the upper third of the tank, or you plant them if it's a vining species. You plant it low and allow it to to get up into the upper third and kind of make a canopy. You're creating areas on the floor that only have diffused light, and so the frogs feel more comfortable coming out. Um, they they provide oftentimes they provide a different texture. You have something like philodendron varicosum, where the the front surface of the leaves is a nice green color with the veins that are kind of purple, and then the backside is just vibrant red. So you you get a splash of color that you don't necessarily get with something else. Or there's some species of philodendron or, or anthurium that you know their leaves are very velvet looking and they're kind of iridescent when the light hits them. Or they have thinking like anthurium clademioides, which is a vining species from Central America that has heart-shaped leaves, but they look like you crumpled up a piece of paper and then unfolded it. And it's everything is the texture is very coarse and bumpy. And so they provide a, a look that you may not necessarily get with another plant. And oftentimes they're not as finicky as a begonia that may give you that same color, but doesn't like mist on its leaves or or certain gisneriads or something like that. Uh, major cons, I think the main con is very few of these plants are meant to be contained in a two by two tank or or something like that. You know, they are all, even filled in varicosum, if you keep it pruned, will maintain leaves that are three to four inches across. But if you let it go wild and you provide it with consistently warm temperatures and high humidity, it'll get leaves that are two feet across. I had a friend who did some some snake field work in either Costa Rica or Panama, and he sent me back a picture of a varicosum on a, on a tree that wasn't that high off the ground, and the leaf was, you know, two feet across and long. Um, so, you know, that's a single leaf on, on this plant. And, and you see that with a lot of different species that we really have to keep the hedgers on them and, and maintain them in a tank to look nice, but they really want conservatories and greenhouses to, to do their, their full thing. I can definitely agree with that. I had, I think it was an alocasia that I put into a, an 18 by 18 by 24 and it was beautiful until, until it got to be about uh, like, like five or six inches too long and it ended up getting hunched over. Now, in the wild, a lot of these plants, like you said, they're not really obviously meant to be kept inside of a small terrarium, but correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of these plants sort of like kind of cluster and, and form their way up towards the canopy almost in like a like a competition for light. Is that why they grow so aggressively is because they're trying to get up towards the light sources wherever it may be? Yeah, there's a lot of them that do. You know, they, they're, the, the adult plants are high in the canopy or, or the mature portions of the plants are high in the canopy. They flower there. It could be that it's light. It could be that they are pollinated by something, you know, a canopy dwelling animal. And so they form their seed up there. The seed falls to the ground. It germinates. 
And then that plant has its race to the top. And in a lot of species, and you see it some in New World, you know, Central South American species like Monstera, and then you see it a lot in Asian species like True Pathos or uh, like Raphidopora, they actually have two distinct growth forms. And most of the what we see when we grow them in a terrarium are the juvenile form. You, you very rarely see the, the mature form that, that would be able to flower. And, and, and we'll get in this with Margravia too, because they do something similar. But essentially in Monstera and Raphidophora, you get what they call you know, this shingling stage. And that's this fantastic hugs tight to a piece of wood or background and and has, you know, alternating leaves that that with real short inner nodes that just run straight up a background and give you almost like a train track appearance or something. And it'll trail up a tree like this for many feet. And then when it hits a certain biomass or when it's exposed to certain conditions, higher light, or, or there's something that triggers it to begin to grow mature leaves. And you get something that looks like Monstera dubia, which in its, in its immature form is shingling with kind of green circular leaves and some white variegation in it. And as it goes up, the leaves turn into what you would expect more out of like Monstera deliciosa, which is kind of your common what they call split leaf philodendron, where you're, you have actually well-deformed petioles and then leaves with the holes in them. And, and they refer to those holes as fenestrations. And that's something that's pretty common in a lot of these climbing species that are these divided leaves. You see it in monsteras. You see it in even uh, what we refer to in the hobby as, as the golden pothos, which is really an epiprimnum. You see it some in, in Raphidophora as well, but once it reaches a certain point, the leaves go from you know, most often entire to these wildly divided uh, leaves that are that are nice in their own right. Yeah, I just acquired a um, a Monstera uh, deliciosa, and I was looking at it. And I, I was thinking, you know what? It kind of looks just like Pothos, except it's got the um, what you said. It's venestrations. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah, the the holes in the leaves. Okay, and it seems to grow very, very similarly. So, I just, uh, I don't know. I was just taken with the 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 visual aspect of the plant. But um, now, will these leaves, the ones I have, I'm going to estimate the leaves are probably around maybe three and a half inches long by maybe two inches wide. Are these going to continue to grow in size as the plant gets larger and develops, or are they going to kind of stay that size? No, they'll, they'll, I have some uh, here. Those are, you know, we're, we're pretty subtropical and it ranges from Mexico into Central America. So it can handle, it can almost handle our cold. It, it could get down to about a freeze. So people plant them in the ground here up and let them grow up against trees. And I, I have some outside of our front door that have probably 18 inch long leaves and they're you know, almost fully fenestrated. And then there's some here that, that get up trees or even, you know, in Florida, they're way up trees and those leaves get massive and, and they'll actually bloom and fruit there. So, yeah, it's a, it's an effect of uh, somewhat maturity, but also allowing it to climb. The taller the vine is able to climb, the, the larger the leaves get. 
Silly question, but what purpose do ventestrations serve? Like what, what evolutionary benefit would something like that have as opposed to just a one piece, uh, one piece leaf, I guess is the only way I could describe it. I, you know, I don't know exactly. And I don't know if, if there is a definitive answer. I think some, you, know, you look at something like Monstera obliqua or some forms of that species, there's more hole than there is leaf. I mean, it looks like just the, the veins of a leaf and the rest of it is gone. And I think some people have, you know, kind of guessed that it's a, a predator um, defense mechanism where, you know, it, it looks like it's already been chewed on to where there's nothing left. And so things kind of leave it alone. I think another probably decent guess is that in general, the higher up in the canopy you get, the higher the light intensity. So maybe it's just an artifact of surface area that these leaves are getting bigger, but they don't necessarily need the uh, the photosynthetic area that they would when they're small and on the forest floor. So it's a way to prevent taking in too much sun. That's an interesting point. What about, um, before you mentioned, and I mean, again, I, I apologize to everyone if I sound completely ignorant of all this, but I am, I'm not really uh, very well, very well versed in any kind of botany, but you mentioned before the different life cycles of the plant. You have the juvenile stage, which you mentioned, and the adult stage, which obviously would, would fruit and bear some kind of seeds. Now, I had read an article recently about golden, oh, technically it's golden pothos, um, and how it's actually not a pothos. I read that too. And apparently they flower extremely rarely. So if these plants have a juvenile stage and an adult stage, I mean, to me, it seems like we're taking cuttings from the juvenile stage. Why is it so difficult for them to, I guess, uh, fruit and produce seeds? Like, why, basically, basically, I'm saying is, why aren't we growing these from seeds? Why are we growing them from cuttings? Well, I think the the main reason is it's just easier to do it from cuttings because you don't need some of these plants need to get up, you know, ten, twenty, you know, fifty feet before they're going to flower, and unless you live either in the tropics or in South Florida or have a, a very large greenhouse, you, you won't experience the flowers. And the other problem with that too, is you need at least two plants or two flowers to pollinate a flower. So not only do you need either to be able to store pollen, which people will refrigerate it or freeze it and, and try to use it later, but pollen storage isn't perfect and it doesn't work all the time. Or you have to um, have two two unique clones of a plant. They have to be, you know, different different clones, and they have to bloom in together, or one right after the other, so that you can time that delay just right and actually pollinate the flowers. As opposed to with the vast majority of, for sure, philodendrons and and other vining genera you just chop it off at every couple leaf points and put it in some soil and keep it humid and you have roots. So asexual reproduction is far more common in all of these. And I think it's a lot of the reason is it's just easier and more convenient for the average person because it takes a lot of effort and a lot of space to, to, you know, get flowers. And then, you know, seed may take um, some of them mature 
in a matter of months, but there's some species that take a year for the the seed head to produce berries and then the berries to 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 ripen and and you know have viable seed. Odd question, but you you mentioned peace lilies earlier, and every time I see peace lilies for sale, they always have that white flower, and it seems to last for a little while, and then it's gone, and then I never see it again. Is that something that the growers are able to manipulate for the for the market? Because obviously, a, a white flower is visually more appealing. But I've had my grandparents had peace lilies when I was a kid, and they only seemed to have the flower when I bought them. Yeah, I, I think some of it is you can probably manipulate those conditions, but also in general, in prime conditions, I find that you know they they flower pretty well pretty often. You know, it's not a species or a genus that seems to have a blooming season. It's more if you keep it, you know, moist and humid and low light in in greenhouse conditions, it, it'll pretty much bloom most of the time. And that's probably why it's made it to the, the mass houseplant market is that you can have, you know, essentially sale ready plants once they're mature at any time of the year, just because they're not seasonal as much as, you know, your, your other garden annuals and perennials. They're able to just produce flowers whenever, whenever they're kind of when you need them to. Uh, you answered my next question then because they they kept them wrong. They they kept them in uh, highlight and very very dry. But I my grandparents didn't have the the, the greenest of thumbs. But that's going to lead to another question, which I'm going to ask you is a lot of the common species that we keep in the the dwarf frog world or in the amphibian world, whatever. What are some care tips to getting these plants to thrive under typical vivarium conditions? Like if you wanted to have success. With a lot of the more commonly available aroids, what would you need in terms of a of a setup? I think one of the most important things is understanding where the plant came from and and catering to its needs or or planting it in a position that provides its needs. Most of the commonly available aroids, as long as you put it in the right spot in a tank, do extremely well and, and that's why they're popular uh going back to the the peace lilies they're i think that's a really cool genus that a lot of people kind of blow off because they're the the home depot plant and in reality you know those are from the new world so they occur in the same habitats that that the frogs would and they they range from central to to south america but they're a a riparian species. So they're going to grow either on rocks or on moss on rocks or in little bits of detritus in between rocks in flowing water. So similar to um, in Asia, you have Bucephalandras and um, Cryptocorans. In Africa, you have Anubias. They all grow, you know, semi-submerged or, or immersed and they have clean flowing water across them. So those, a peace lily is something that I love to use with with glass frogs. I'll I'll find there are sources for you know the non cultivar the true species. There's there's one from Ecuador that has dark almost black leaves and and a nice small white flower and and it's in bloom pretty often. Uh, but you know you plant it in the bottom of a tank in some inorganic substrate and. It'll do great with wet feet as long as the water doesn't get too stagnant. If you've got, if your tank is drilled or, or you 
uh, suction out the water fairly often. It can handle the wet feet as long as the, the substrate is inorganic and not mucky. And it provides great support for small tree frogs or, or, or glass frogs along the leaves to sleep. Something like, um, say, Anthurium crystallinum or some of the more what they call velvet leaf anthuriums, which often have dark green leaves, pretty decent sized, kind of heart shaped, and then silver or white veining through them. Those grow in wet conditions in Central and South America, but they have really dark leaves because they're they're grown in they naturally grow in really low light. So you don't want to put that in the foreground of a tank with nothing over the top of it where you're blasting it with LEDs because it'll bleach out and you'll get lighter green growth and, and you won't get it to grow to its full potential. Something like there are a number of corrugated leaf philodendrons that are from higher elevation in South America that you don't want to put in a you know, a, a glass tank that has a glass top that gets misted five times a day for a minute each in a room that's 82 degrees with a with a light on top. It just it's going to melt them. Those want airflow and humidity, maybe some wetness, but they do want to they want the leaves to dry out slightly between waterings or they just always want to be in moist moving air. Um, so, you know, the main takeaway with any plant is research where it came from. And, and aeroids are pretty well known. And there's decent websites out there that can tell you more or less where they're from, more or less their elevational range. And that'll give you an idea of, of proper temperatures. And it, they're, they're pretty easy because of their popularity. And, and because there's so many places growing them now, it's pretty easy to find information on them as opposed to some of the more obscure genera that, that we keep in tanks. I'll tell you what, I just, I just kind of came up with an idea. Why don't we do a little virtual vivarium build with, with plants? So, but what I mean is let's just say that we have a, we'll say a, a pick a, pick a normal size. Let's just say a 36 by uh, 18 by 36. Let's just say we have a, you know, nice, decent, uh, exoterra type terrarium. Uh, we have our, our background, which we'll say is a combination of, uh, the polyurethane foam that's been carved and cork. Now we want to plant some aroids in this vivarium. So what are some choices that we would have and how would we want to plant it and, and, and set up lighting and, um, drainage, et cetera. Like just kind of give, give me a, a list of a couple of plants and like, how we would want to set up the vivarium to accommodate them. Okay. Um, so for, in terms of kind of setting up more the, the enclosure, I typically drill my tanks and I use turfus as a substrate just on its own topped with leaf litter uh, that provides good drainage, but also good moisture retention, allows the microfauna lots of, of surface area to, to get in and you don't ever have to worry about it getting anaerobic and, and really breaking down because your water flows out with the with the the, the drill the drains and um it, it promotes really good healthy root growth so starting from the bottom going up on the assuming that that we're going to have a canopy and that the bottom will be primarily shaded i do my sort of rosette like uh, anthuriums 
down at the bottom or spathophyllum, certain peace lilies. You could do um, something like Anthurium forgetii, which is a nice, it's got velvet leaves. The the leaf is is almost perfectly round. Uh, they, the leaf is what they call peltate because the petiole actually attaches to the middle of the leaf, not the edge. The It's kind of a dark green leaf with some, depending on the form you get, it's either just perfectly dark green kind of crystalline texture or you'll get some white veining throughout it. So, so it produces some nice contrast. You could do something like Anthurium crystallinum or Magnificum, but you want to keep those small because those do those will get big in time, but they can be managed. Um, going up from, so it would be planted in the substrate, but it would be allowed to either go up the background or go up a, a major piece of wood up into the canopy <clears throat> would be something like Philodendron varicosum, or there's a similar species called it's it's undescribed. It's from Ecuador. They call it fuzzy petiole. It's a really sturdy plant, so it can support even something like tinks or tree frogs. The leaves, Ericosum, I, I've described the leaves. It's got nice color contrast. The the petioles are are very hairy. Um, it just looks really nice in a tank, can be managed pretty well. Same thing with fuzzy petiole. The leaves aren't as colorful, but the new leaves are peachy pink. The petioles aren't as fuzzy as varicosum, so the name is kind of a misnomer, but they're they're nice and scaly. It's extremely sturdy. Uh, I, I keep it in enclosures with Sylvatica and Histrionica, and it does very well. Something else you could run up there are uh, serpens, Philodendron serpens or squamacol. Both of them look similar. They have reddish green petioles with kind of arrowhead bright green leaves with a nice vein texture. Uh, those are really hairy on the petioles. So you, you, it's again, nice texture. They're also pretty sturdy vines. And both of those come from Ecuador. I, I pay attention. I don't do the greatest job of it all the time, but when I'm able to, I try to match my frogs with my plants. So the, the varicosum is pretty wide ranging. It's from probably Mexico down into Northern South America. So it's, it's can go with most of them. Uh, fuzzy petiole is Ecuadorian. Serpens and squamacol are also Ecuadorian. As far as getting into growing on woodwork, um, smaller branches throughout that you want to give a nice little accent to. There's a number of, of really nice undescribed philodendron species from Central America that I think most of them originated from Atlanta Botanic Gardens, but they go by um, either wing petiole philodendrons because the, the petioles have this extra sheath on them, or I've seen them, I call them species round leaf, species Costa Rica, and species lance leaf. That's just kind of describers of the the different species because they've never been formally classified. Uh, they're all from section Teramishum, starts with a P, P-T-E-R-O-M-I-S-C-H-U-M. And, and that section of philodendron is classified by those wing petioles in the juvenile form. They grow really nicely. They keep tight inner node space. So you don't have one leaf and then way, you know, six inches down the line, another leaf. They, they keep it to two to three inches and they're, they're just really easy to manage in a tank. Another one 
that's really nice that could either serve that same purpose or go up a background kind of like the the varicosum serpens squamacol type is uh, in equilaterum. And that one has kind of passed around the hobby as the paper philodendron or species paper thin because the leaves, the texture of the leaf is extremely, extremely thin. It's almost like there's just one layer of the leaf. It is not indicative of its ability to withstand low humidity though, because I've grown it outdoors here in Louisiana where we don't necessarily ever have low humidity, but we have kind of wild swings throughout the day. I've grown it in a greenhouse and I've also grown it in a terrarium and it's done well, I, I bloomed it outside. So it, it's done well in in kind of a range of conditions. And, and that one's not, that was a little more uncommon. You don't see that one being imported. I think that was a botanical garden introduction to other kind of accenty types. Uh, Philodendron chinchamayense is a really nice one. It has extremely thin leaves that get long. It's a Peruvian species. Um, Anthurium species limon is one that kind of climbs. It's got more the, the top of the leaf is kind of rounded and then it comes to a point, it's almost like a reverse teardrop. And it's similar, it's a, it's a climber from rainforest in Central America. That I kind of group with Anthurium clydemioides, which is another uh, viner that, that has really uh, pebbly leaves. Those are a little tougher to grow, but if you get them going and, and can and get them really doing well in a tank, they're, they provide a nice effect. Um, in terms of on the background, you could do any number of, of either Monsteras or Raphidophora. Monstera dubia is a really good shingling species, and it comes, there's a form. The most common form has kind of natural variegation, some white flecking in the leaves and in, in lines. And then there's a green form that the leaf tends to have a little more texture, and it's kind of a, a satiny crystalline texture over the leaf but it shingles and, and holds really nice to the back of a tank and then there's uh, raphidophora um, cryptantha is another one that has kind of natural variegation it has white uh, vein markings throughout it um, and then you can even get i remember i don't even know if it's really grown much anymore but there was a raphidophora that people were offering that was called hong kongensis and even in a in a 24 by 18 by 24, the leaves would get dinner plate sized, but it would hold to the back of a background, everything laid flat on a background. So you could get these big showy leaves and it not take up the space that it would if that leaf, you know, was just out in the tank. Um, a new introduction that would also be a kind of neat shingler is Pothos, uh, I think the proper name is Bacarianus, but it's sold a lot as either that name or Barbarianus. It's an Indonesian true pothos, and it has kind of green tinged leaves, and the inside is either this really pretty red or orange. Uh, it's kind of a slow grower, wants to be really wet, and it comes from Indonesia, Borneo, Sumatra area. What about lighting, if we wanted to light everything appropriately to, um, well, I guess, how do I phrase this? Like, I guess if we wanted to encourage growth, but not to the point where it would completely overwhelm the vivarium, like what are some good lighting choices that you'd recommend? So I, 
lighting is a is a battle that uh, a lot of people like to argue about. And I've researched lighting. I grew orchids before I got into dart frogs. And that was actually my first foray into tanks was grow, was was building terrariums to grow orchids. And I've read about, you know, this light is superior, that light is superior. I found that LEDs are great as long as they're close to the spectrum of 6,500 Kelvin as a color temperature. It grows most of what we want to grow well. Uh, I bloomed a number of different high light demanding orchids under it low light demanding orchids under the same light just all you know changing the placement of the plants i've grown tons of aeroids under it many begonias just nereids i like there's some some you know inexpensive low profile lights that that i've found on amazon that kind of daisy chain together that um they've worked for me uh, other people have opinions on it and and you know favor this light over the other but in my experience as long as the color temperature is right it's it it does what it needs to do for the plants we want to grow follow-up question for you and this is something that i'd always wondered for a long time how is it that we're able to grow plants so well under artificial light as opposed to natural sunlight and by that i mean a lot of animals that are kept in captivity, especially well, reptiles, have a need for UVB, UVA, etc., natural radiation from the sun. Why are we able to grow these plants so well, completely absent of natural sunlight? So in plants, there are certain peaks within the light spectrum that are required to generate shoot growth, root growth and induce flowering and in you know the the today's age of both you know fluorescent lights and led lights most of them hit those peaks in enough um, quantity that they're growing they're, they're good enough to stimulate all of those physiologic um, processes in plants they're probably you know the the true grow lights i mean there are people that grow plants for production purposes under lights that know it far better than i do at least and you know they're maximizing the the light energy output in the specific light peak you know nanometer peaks that produce each of those processes for the plants that we grow you either it's it's either not as necessary or it's it's not as necessary to produce a what you know we would define as a an adequate outcome you could probably put i mean there's tons of really really good orchid growers that grow all of their plants under the the spaceship uv lights that are blue and red and purple and they grow beautiful plants but to me part of the appeal of growing a plant you know, under lights in, in an enclosure is I have to look at that enclosure every day. And so I want light that's easy on my eyes that still produces a, uh, an, a, an outcome that is, is what I consider, you know, good growth or good blooming. I may not get the most blooms on the plant, 
but I'm also not, you know, my, if I keep frogs in there, my frogs don't look purple all the time. The spaceship lights analogy is actually really funny because I, <laughs> I, I, I have a couple of those. Um, I have two Fluval fresh and plant lights. Actually, I'm sorry. I take that back. I have four and I've been really, really happy with the plant growth, but they have those, uh, primarily the white LED, uh, the white LED, or I guess it'd be the diodes, right? That's the individual lights. Right, right. Okay, so they have the, the white diodes and there's a couple of blue and there's a couple of reds and some of the less expensive ones that I have have that as well. And my tank that's higher up, I the the video that I showed a couple of while, a while back on Instagram, I showed that kind of big setup that I have with the 440 breeders and mm-hmm. I'm looking up from the, you know, from the floor up and it looks exactly like that. It looks like there's a UFO hovering over the tank about to abduct me and my frogs. And I always wonder what they must make of that because it's got to look extremely bizarre to them too. Right. Yeah, and that's the that's the argument. You know, there's people that are, and, and you see it a lot. I haven't researched it in, in a number of years, but back, I, I had a brief venture into saltwater aquariums. And, and back then, there was a big push against using LEDs to grow corals because you couldn't, the fluorescent light blends all of those spectrums and, and peaks well because it's the light emitted from a single bulb or, or a bank of bulbs. Whereas these LED lights are very concentrated beams of light coming from a single diode and you've got hundreds of these diodes in the, the light. So you get the you know, the overall, when you take the average of the spectrums, you get the light output that you want, but really your, you know, the light for a certain spectrum is really all concentrated in the middle of the, of the light, because that's where that diode falls, or that's where one of those diodes falls and it's surrounded by white diodes or, or, you know, something like that. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm like, I've always been curious about lighting. I was never really able to fully wrap my head around the science behind it, but it's, um, I mean, do, do you have a preference? I mean, you don't, you don't have to say if you do or you don't, but do you have a preference for a certain, uh, like a certain brand of lighting or fluorescent versus LED? Is there anything that like you, your go-to is? I have switched over everything outside of, I, I keep lizards and stuff too. And those are all under the UV lights. I've, I still use fluorescent, but outside of that, everything I use is LED. And my main motivation for that is down here in the summer, we can get really hot and LEDs are, are efficient at directing their, their heat towards the heat sink. So oftentimes that's at the, the upper portion of the, the unit. And so the heat goes up and is not directed down into you know, my tanks. And so, whereas with a fluorescent bulb, if you have a hood, you can concentrate that heat and some of it can radiate down into the tank. And before I I upgraded the air condition in the animal room, I could get to the low 80s in the, you know, when we're 97 degrees outside. So I couldn't afford to have that extra heat input from a fluorescent light. Um, The other thing is too, uh, LED lights are far more you get more light per energy usage so you can daisy chain more together you don't have to worry as much about having a million plug-in strips and your electric bill is is far less and when you're growing plants under lights and have frog tanks and everything else that's becomes a consideration um 
I use, as far as my LED lights, the vast majority of my tanks are under the, the brand is Barina and B-A-R-R-I-N-A. And it's a T5 replacement tube that that's all led that you, I, you can get them i think the four foot lights are fifty dollars for four or eight of them on amazon that's a good that's a good price yeah <laughs> because i've seen some leds that are really really cheap or really really expensive yeah and i've used some of the the more expensive back before there were terrestrial design lights i was using some of the freshwater aquarium styled and and color temperature lights for dart frog tanks because whether it's underwater or on land it's the same kind of environment and i love the light they put out but i had some of them either the the ballast unit would fry after a year or something like that and you're buying a 150 dollar light you get to use it for 18 months and it just wasn't that got old yeah i could see that being a problem i unfortunately though my the Mind of the, the fluvials that I bought have lasted a long time. I mm-hmm. bought the some of the the I think it's the Nicru, N I C R E W. That's the Amazon's like lowest uh, lowest the <laughs> low. Um, I, I for some of my lower light enclosures they worked fairly well, but those things tend to die after a while. But I haven't really been able to find more of a middle middle of the road alternative to those. Yeah, if you I've I've used these barinas for several years, and if you put them you either have to orient the light you know the the bulb itself is rounded so you either have to orient the light so the light faces away from you viewing the tank or if you have some kind of a hood over your tanks you can hide them in there but they seem to they grow things well they last a long time and and like i said they're they're relatively inexpensive for a decent quality led cool well i want to ask what one last question before we before we wrap up on the Aroid topic, um, if we wanted to create a, a biome, and I mean an, an accurate as possible biome for any given group of dart frogs, I mean, obviously, dart frogs don't all live in the same exact spots together. Phyllobates tend to, you know, you have a lot of Phyllobates in Colombia, you have a lot of Tinctorius in places like Suriname, and you have Wolfaga Pamelio up into like Central America, et cetera. Is it possible to create a biome based with just plants from one specific area or are you kind of married to wherever the plants came from? Cause I know you, before you had mentioned Ecuador several times and I don't know what the plant situation is with, with Brazil. So we're not even going to discuss that, but um, other places like say like Colombia or Venezuela or Panama, is it easy to source plants from those locations or are you kind of just stuck with whatever you've got available? So uh, it definitely varies by the country. Um, I would almost venture to say that I, I know you mentioned, you know, Brazil as a as a no, but there was a a very well known landscape designer, Roberto Burley Marx, who has a number of plants named after him. A lot that he had plants in his gardens that made it into other gardens and and into major cultivation. So there's a, a lot of Brazilian plants that are actually grown as both landscape plants and as tropicals but there's not a lot of new material coming out of brazil that i know of Uh, ecuador is extremely easy there are probably three if not more major nurseries out of ecuador that are bringing in plants to the united states once a month um 
Peru is similar. There are a couple of specialty nurseries in Peru that are that are supplying the U.S. actively with plants. There's also a lot of plants that are already grown domestically that come from Peru and Ecuador in specialty, you know, mom and pop nurseries. There's not a lot of terrarium specific nurseries. There are some certain people who cater to the terrarium hobby that I think most of us started in dark frogs and and have just kind of built a, a plant collection. But there's a lot of people that grow gisneriads, say, that that have a lot of plants from these areas. There's people that grow philodendrons or there's specialty nurseries within their own niches that grow plants that apply to the terrarium hobby. Central America is decent. You can definitely get a number of the the philodendrons. There's some good palm growers. There's actually some really nice um miniature palm species that occur in Panama and Costa Rica that that would do well in terrariums and even down into Ecuador. So Central America is decently covered. So I'd say I don't know about Suriname and Guyana and those areas. There's not, I don't know of any nurseries there. I don't know of a lot of plants that come from there. So you'd be tied to kind of trying to figure out, okay, you know, Ecuador borders here, Brazil borders here. We can probably make that work. Colombia, I there's an orchid nursery in Colombia, but to my knowledge, they don't supply anything besides orchids. So Colombia would be another tough one, but you could play the it grows in Ecuador, it probably grows in Colombia game. And more often than not, it does. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I just I I I'm only I can only think about it through the dart frog lens in terms of what comes here from imports and obviously, I mean, I mentioned Brazil, but Brazil has its own, you know, just for anybody outside of the U S um, Brazil is an interesting situation, but um, I always think about like, well, if we're getting dart frogs from ABC or area or really any animal, I never really thought about it through the, the lens of plants, but um, I mean, is, is there the same kind of regulation with wildlife that you have with plants? Yes, to some degree. I think plants are are less heavily. Well, I I guess let me rephrase that. Certain plants are less heavily regulated than others. And it primarily has to do with, you know, all of dendrobatids are at a minimum CITES 2. And, and, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with CITES, that's the international law that essentially regulates the trade of of animals across national borders and most of the time they're put on a CITES listing they call them appendices based on their level of conservation concern with CITES 1 being the the most restrictive and CITES 2 being they can be imported or exported but there's some concessions that have to be made ahead of time like captive bred or or quotas and that kind of stuff plants also fall under CITES and so all orchids are at a minimum CITES too. So you need a lot more paperwork to bring in orchids. I don't know of, I'm sure there, well, so there are some aeroids that are CITES 1, CITES 2, but they're isolated, you know, specific species that are endangered in nature. A philodendron varicosum or something like that that's widely grown, widespread, is not at all regulated by CITES. 
the only thing you need to bring it into the country in a mass import is either a phytosanitary certificate that says that the plants are without pests and, and are free of soil and, and other more agricultural based restrictions and an import permit, um, which you can apply for online and, and you know, get in a reasonable amount of time. The I don't know what, you know, I, I look at some of that from the lens of animals, too. And Costa Rica requires animals to be bred down to a certain generation in captivity, whether it's F2 or F3, before those can even be considered. You know, you saw that with with Clark when Brian Kubicki was sending things to understory and uh, a couple of other people in Costa Rica have done it. There's there's requirements for animals. I don't know how it works with plants. I would assume that you would have to have to, to truly do it legitimately. You would need some kind of physical nursery and there would be some inspections to prove that these these plants aren't just you know, being chopped out of the forest, thrown in a pot to, to grow out and then shipped out. But I don't know for sure. I do know that a lot of the Ecuadorian nurseries, they, they've done it the longest and they've kind of got it down. A lot of that stuff is being either micropropagated through tissue culture or, or, you know, vegetatively through divisions. And they may have their own property that they're planting stuff on in their own, you know, woods and then making cuttings and introducing them to the nursery and propagating them or they're doing it all in a nursery setting interesting interesting yeah i I've, I've always just wondered about how stuff like that is managed because again the only time you think about plants is if they're going to be invasive or if they're going to pose an agricultural hazard i never really thought about about the situation house plants in fact i didn't even know that that plants were on cites oh yeah and and there are just as many you look at orchids, orchids are one of the major orchids and I guess palms and cycads are, are some of the major, majorly regulated taxa. And there's just as many stories of smuggling in those as you hear in you know, dart frogs or, or, you know, pick an animal genera and, and you orchids are famous. There's books written about, you know, smuggled orchids. I can only imagine like the <laughs> the drama behind that. That's got to be crazy. Well, what we're going to do now is uh, we're going to break. And uh, I want to pick up next time in a, in a part two, we're going to talk, we're going to touch on McGravia. And there's a couple other topics we're going to get into as well. I want to discuss quarantine and a few other things as well. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I want to thank Zach and he's going to come back for part two. So stay tuned for that. But before we get to that, I just want to have Zach just mention uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with you or check out any of your plants, if you want to just give a quick mention in terms of uh, how they can find you. Yeah, uh, I'm most active social media on Instagram, and that's equatorial underscore ecosystems there. Uh, I also have a website that's, I, I think I said it was outdated in the, in the last one. It's still terribly outdated, but it at least gives you some idea, and I hope to update it soon. It's equatorial-ecosystems.com. Uh, you can also contact me on Facebook on my personal page through Messenger or or however. Uh, I'm Zachary Good now. Cool. All right, everyone. I want you guys to stay tuned for the second part of this, which will be coming up soon. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if you guys like this plant content, definitely let me know. And I'd like to continue it because plant uh, 
Oh, the plants are a, a very instrumental part in vivarium builds. So hope you guys enjoyed this one. Catch up with you again soon.